Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everyone. You are tuned to 855 AM 3CR and you're listening to Out of the Blue with Donna and Matt and a special guest, Cade Mills from the Victorian National Parks Association is in the studio with us today to talk about the Great Victorian Fish Count, which is coming up in November and December this year. And we're also going to be talking about Resurrecting Reefs, a citizen science project that Cade's been working on as well. We'll be back in a second after this cart with today's show. Three CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Welcome back. It's Out of the Blue on 855 AM 3CR. I'm Donna, Matt's on the panel and Cade Mills is joining us. Welcome to the studio, Cade. Thank you very much. So you've got a big event coming up in November and December, the annual Great Victorian Fish Count. Can you tell us a bit about what that is? Well, this year will be my second year running it, so I'm actually a little mm-hmm. bit more organised for a change, which is quite nice. But I guess the principle of it is simple. It's to sort of activate people and get them out in the water and exploring, I guess, the bay and the state as a whole. Um, we've got some pretty remarkable species out there, and I think too often a lot of a lot of people only jump in the water when they go on holiday somewhere warm, whether it's you know Bali or Queensland, and they sort of forget that they can do it when they're at home. And this is a way to... I guess, energise people to get out there. But it's also a way to recognise that a fish is not a fish. And I've been using the analogy because I'm not much of a bird watcher. 
And to me, a bird is a bird, but you go out with a bird watcher and they'll point out, you know, 15, 20 different species in one Mm. paddock. Whereas you go out with a diver and they'll do the same with fish. And so this is just about getting people out there, having a look and realising that there's a lot of different fish and they all sort of have their own unique characteristics and sort of stories behind them. And what are the kind of um, top species that you're looking for then when you're out and about in the water undertaking the Great Vic Fish Count? Uh, so we've got 25 species that we've been counting for the last 13 years now. Um, so it varies from things such as the weedy sea dragon, which is our state emblem. Um, and that's one we should probably know as much as we can about because it's one that we look after. There's another one there called the harlequin fish, which hasn't been sighted in Victorian waters since the late 1800s, I believe. Um, it's in South Australia and it has there's records of it in Victoria. In fact, it likes clear water. And the record that's in the museum is a specimen collected from Hobson's Bay, hmm. which makes you think that once upon a time, Hobson's Bay might have been slightly different had, to, had what, visibility. Yeah, <laughs> to what it is now. <coughs> and that's a species we think we will probably see again here, potentially. So we've got people hmm. keeping an eye out for it. Uh, the blue groper is another one, which, again, was one of those ones that there's records of it. There were records of it having been in Victoria hadn't been seen for quite a few years and then through the fish count and through other divers that were out there it started getting sighted probably about 10 years ago mm. and is now reasonably frequently sort of seen now uh, there's the camera the underwater camera that's out at Pope's Eye ah oh, we were talking about that at our, on our last show yeah, yeah it's amazing so, there you go while well, I'm linking so you know, here's how's cool. a segue linking it in <laughs> because I've actually got footage of a blue groper out at Pope's Eye taken from that camera so, which is pretty cool. So there's, there's species like that. And then there's a few others that are you know, ones that are commercially or recreationally sort of target species that we're just trying to, I guess, get a bit of baseline information about. Mm. Um, with a lot of this information, it may sit there and not be used mm. for quite a while, but it's information that's not recorded otherwise. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the time it'll be something will happen or the people will notice change. And at least we now have some information that we can go back and look through and go, okay, how long has this change been happening? And is it related to a particular event? Or is it just a natural occurrence? So mm. it's a, also a good way to build up some data as well. And is that why those 25 species uh, have been selected? Because they are susceptible to change or they're impacted by different water use types or things going on in our environment? Yeah, I believe there were a lot of really good reasons for choosing those species 13 years ago. As I said, I've been doing it for two. I've been trying to um, catch up with Mark Norman. He was involved in it at the beginning to try and get a story for each of them. But some of them are pretty simple. So things like the Western Blue Devil or the Southern Blue Devil, sorry, is a very territorial species, long-lived, doesn't move very far. If its habitat changes, you won't find it there. Mm. Um, And it's a good way for people to, you know, you almost get to know the guy. You can call in and say good day to the same species of fish at all times and mm-hmm. so it's a quite a small range one that would be influenced by changes to its habitat um, there was another one I was just reading before and I'm just going to have to find it, oh, the banded morwong mm-hmm. which is a reasonably common fish and apparently they can live up to about 90 years wow yeah which is huge I know some of the red morwong can live quite long about 40 years um it's incredible. So there's these species that, yeah, they have these sort of long life cycles. If they're to be impacted upon in a short period of time, you know, it can take a while for them to come back. So it's a, mm. a way of keeping tabs, yeah. And have you noticed that looking at the data from the last however many years? Have there been any significant changes or noticeable I had a a quick look through the data um, in the lead up to last year's event. We had a presentation and 
presentation night where we presented some of the data and we'll be doing it again this year, um, minus the data, <laughs> and had a quick wade through. And there were some, some trends in the data, but most of the time they seemed to write themselves. So there were some downward trends for some species, mm. but because the data is over such a long time scale, we're able to see them sort of come back up. So it needs to be interrogated further. Um, I'm currently wading through the data. It's sort of that... Pardon the pun. Yes. <laughs> it's, it is it's one of those on my to-do list and it's something I do when I get a couple of hours at work, I'll start getting that data into a format which I can start to look at and use and sort of give some feedback. Mm. And using citizen science to collect all the data, how does that... Um, like, is that a, an easy thing for people to get involved in? Do you need to know anything about fish or what they look like before you jump in the water and start looking for things? Um, how, how does it go for people who are not really divers or the occasional snorkeler? Well, the, the <clears throat> beauty is that it was originally designed to allow anyone, whether they'd seen these fish before or not, to get on board. So we have a slate, which is about the size of an A3 a four sheet of paper mm -hmm. and we have color images of each of the fish that we're looking for on the yep. slate that people take out with them and i'd say it's kind of like a treasure hunt so people go out <laughs> there they have these 25 species and go and find them we know they're in the water go and yep. find them perhaps with the exception <clears throat> of harlequin fish could be a bit difficult mm -hmm. but we send them out and they have they take that snorkeling with them so it's kind of like you you've got the slate in front of you and you're just cross-checking with what's in front of you to what you're actually seeing in the water. And I took my daughter last year to do it and she doesn't know her fish species at all. And she absolutely loved it oh, and great. had a ball, but was able to correctly identify using the slate. Um, and then you will often find what people will do is they'll keep coming back year after year. So their knowledge builds mm -hmm. each year. So they do it one year, they recognise a few things, they might dive or snorkel in between. And so we don't limit people to what they see on the slate so if they see other species they will let us know and we're actually increasing the number of species this year and adding a few um i say friendly sharks and rays <laughs> to the list um yeah just to <clears throat> people do see i guess it's the highlight of a snorkel if you see a stingray cruising past it's the one thing people tend to remember mm. or focus when they talk about when they get out and the same with some of the sharks like we have a lot of I have to keep saying friendly sharks because <laughs> we, we don't want to discourage people from getting involved and getting on board. But mm. like Port Jackson sharks are in the bay at the moment and people, cool. once they know they're there, they're out there snorkeling and trying to find them. So they're, they're quite keen to go and see these species. So we're adding them as well. Great. Yeah, yeah rays have had a bit of a um, bad bad run this year and last with all the... Um, the banjo. Yeah, the banjo shark mm. and fisher people kind of um, like slicing them open when they're fishing and whatnot so it's that'll be interesting to include them going forward uh, that that was <clears throat> we actually decided two weeks before the project banjo and the raise mm -hmm. awareness that we were going to add sharks and rays oh. and then mm -hmm. i spoke to pt and she was doing all the work with sort of raising the awareness and it just aligned perfectly it was fantastic right. and they I'll segue through to a promotion if I can. Please do, <laughs> So yeah. on, on the 1st of November, <laughs> Wednesday night, starting at 6 o'clock at the Green Building in Leicester Street in Carlton, we're actually going to have some presenters come along and talk about some citizen science projects, including the Operation Sponge guys who relocated the, sponge on the sponges on the wall at Blair Gowrie. PT is going to come and fill us in about the Project Banjo and the work that she's done with that. We've got Di Bray from the museum. And her, I'm looking forward to her talk. It's going to be about the um, exploration of the abyssal waters of Australia. She's got wow. some footage 
from Noah for, and some of the species mm-hmm. that they collected and photos of that, that they collected on their journey. So, Amazing. So, yeah, so it's Wednesday the 1st. It's a free gig. Just jump on Eventbrite and look for Fish Count 17. You can get involved. I'm just writing that down. So that's the yeah. 60L building? It is the 60L building, just near the Queen Vic Markets. Yeah. Pretty easy to find and get so to. So you've mentioned the Paul Jackson shark. What other sharks have you got on the list? Can I just find my piece of paper? I have... So we've got the spotted wobbegongs, mm-hmm. we've got the varied carpet shark, which is quite a cool one, it's like the pearl necklace shark, yep. yeah, little one. <laughs> the draft board swell shark, which is reasonably commonly sighted, and I think just purely because they look so cool as the elephant fish or the elephant shark. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those species I haven't been able to see diving yet, yeah. like I've seen them come on board a boat or if I've been out trawling. But I've never seen one just cruising around in the water, so it's kind of on my, my list. Yeah. So I thought I'd add it to everyone else's. I was going to say, most <laughs> yeah. of those are puppy dogs, except for the wobbegong, just <coughs> keep a distance from those guys. Yeah, you don't want to sit on a wobbegong. Yeah. I've actually seen someone do that. They yeah. descended too quickly and went bum down on a wobbegong, and yeah. it turned around and snapped him on the butt. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yes. But, yeah, they'll leave you alone if you leave them alone, of course. So. That's, as I said, friendly. Yeah. 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 And what are the other rays that you... So the other rays, so we've got the smooth and the black stingray. Um, basically, they're the biggest in Australia and they're sort of probably the most graceful. They're most amazing to see and people rave about when they mm. come across them. The good old spotted stingray and stingaree, the eagle ray, mm-hmm. which kind of oh. looks like a puppy dog. It's something yeah, about it. Cool. And <laughs> everyone's favourite fiddler ray. <laughs> they're everywhere. And yeah, they're, they are. They, they are kind of <laughs> cute and pretty docile and, yeah. They're a bit of fun. They are the puppy dogs. They feed out of your hand. They do, yeah. Yeah. So There's so many of them at Point Cook. Well, that's part of the reason they've been added. So Andrew, another host on the show, has said that every year he does a fish count and he doesn't see many of the fish, but he sees lots lots of rays. So this year we're adding some rays for him and he'll be able to (laughs) keep us posted. Yeah. We're talking to Cade Mills from the Victorian National Parks Association about Reef Watch and we'll be back after this announcement. Are you interested in philanthropy? Do you want to be a major philanthropist? Well, I can help you. Donate to the 3CR Radiophon. Get a legal, legitimate tax deduction by listening to your favourite radical program on Community Radio 3CR. Ring now, 94198377. Tell your friends, tell your rich and powerful friends, you too are a rich and powerful philanthropist. Ring now, 94198377. Don't use the telephone. A bit passe. Well, go to 3cr.org.au. This is your chance to keep 3CR on air and get a legal, legitimate tax deduction. Donate now. Welcome back to Out of the Blue. You're tuned to 855 AM 3CR. It's Donna, Matt and our special guest, Cade, in the studio today. Um, before we get back to Cade, I've just got a couple of um, clean-up announcements for everyone. Uh, this morning from 11 AM till 2 PM, the Melbourne... Um, Sea Shepherd Marine Debris campaign are running a Melbourne cleanup at Brighton Dog Beach. So head on down for um, a cleanup, sort, count, all the data that they collect and all the litter. 
the litter goes in the bin, the data goes into the um, Tangaroa Blue Australian Marine Debris Initiative database, which then goes on to inform policy, planning and projects. So head on down if you feel like cleaning up. And also there is a Tangaroa Blue cleanup happening on, I'll come back to the date but Tangaroa Blue have partnered up with Jack Johnson and they are doing a a fundraiser where every um, dollar that Tangaroa Blue receives between October the 15th and December the 31st will be matched by Jack Johnson. What a legend. Um, We'll put the details of their cleanup and that that, uh, fundraiser on our Facebook page. Two announcements. Now we will return to Cade, who is going to tell us a little bit about a project called Resurrecting Reefs, a citizen science project about re-establishing reefs in Port Port Phillip Bay, I think. Yeah, so we're doing a citizen science component of the restoration of the shellfish reefs in Port Mm -hmm. Phillip Bay. So the restoration project is... It's been led by the Nature Conservancy, but it also involves, you know, Fisheries, Albert Park, Fishing Club and quite a few groups and trying to bring back the lost oyster reefs of Port Phillip Bay, which was a challenge because it's one of those things where people didn't actually know they existed in the Mm. first place. So to get people involved in a citizen science project about something that they weren't aware existed was quite a lot of fun to begin with. Mm. But there's been a lot of of help and a lot of buy-in with it. And so... We ran, a, I guess, a pilot experiment last year. And so we had a group from Point Cook. So Andrew was helping us out. Mm-hmm. We had a group at Albert Park Fishing Club, Ricketts Point, and also down at Blair Gowrie. And we put out settlement plates in October, so around this time of the year, to see if we can actually get some recruitment of um, the, sorry, some natural recruitment of oysters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know they're in the bay. They're sort of we've seen sort of patches of them here, there, and anywhere, everywhere. And I guess they're considered functionally extinct. So the idea being that they're there, but they're not functioning as a reef mm. and a big ecosystem as they once would have. So what mm. we're trying to do with the settlement plates is try and work out areas where you're going to get this natural recruitment. Um, if you're going to go, to, if we're going to restore the reefs at the scale we'd like to. It's not going to all be done through aquaculture. It's going to require some natural recruitment to resort of stock these areas. So we're trying to get citizen science involved in discovering where there's, I guess, these hotspots are in Port Phillip Bay. So I've just come back yesterday. I was out at Morty Alec with Academy of Scuba. They do their dive cleanup yep. at the pier. And at the same time, we put out the sediment plates um, and also dive line in Frankston. Again, mm. same thing. They do their cleanup of the pier, but they've also got the sediment plates out there and they can keep an eye on them. So they're, they're out again. We're going to check them in three months, um, swap over the plates, and then check them in another three months over that. But we found the first year the plates work, settlement plates work. We got some really good recruitment of oysters in some places, uh, Blair Gary in particular. And it was one of those moments where we're like, wow, what's going on at Blair Gary? And then I went for a dive back from where the plates are, and it's underneath the floating pontoon. And I think divers are a lot like people sometimes. You forget to look up. So (laughs) I had a look up and underneath the floating pontoon were thousands and thousands of oysters, like a a huge amount of oysters. So obviously that's where the natural spat was Mm. coming from for the sediment plates. But it was just interesting that they were all underneath. And then we collected our plates and sort of had a look at the data. And I think one of the, the cooler results to come out of it was that 
all except for one oyster was found on the underside of the settlement plates. Mm. So we had all the plates out and generally you look at that top surface and you go, oh, okay, we're done. But we obviously mm. had a look at both and they were all on the underneath. Wow. So we had a, a workshop with um, the scientists from Melbourne Uni and you know, basically they were like, oh, that's interesting sort of result. And potentially it could be a way to avoid sedimentation. So when the plates go out, you might get a lot of sediment set on top and they may not like to settle on that or mm. settle through that. Or the other could be a light issue. So they like to settle in areas out of light. We don't mm. know. It just kind of, it's like any research. You yeah. do something and you end up asking 10 questions in the attempt <laughs> to try and answer one. Were they the only ones that were found underneath? Like all the other plates that were put out around other places around the bay, were they all on top? Or? That was all plates across the bay. That's what oh, I'm saying. All okay. except I for it was one. Just, no, sorry, okay. not just Blair yeah, Garrett. Yeah. It was all plates all <laughs> across the bay. So that okay. behaviour was the same there, at all locations. Is there much historical data <clears throat> on the um, original distributions of the oysters to get an idea of where you can focus your efforts? There is a fantastic paper that just recently come out um, from John Ford and Paul Hamer that looked used a lot of the old stories and um, went through Trove to look through newspaper articles and fishermen and fish, fishermen mm-hmm. and spoke to them. So the northern part of the bay, so northern and the Geelong Arm, mm-hmm. are the areas where the reefs were quite extensive. Uh, but it's one of those things. Okay. That was so long ago, it it may change the habitat preference may actually have changed from yeah. what it was then yeah. but they're, they're, they are focusing in those areas just due to the historic sort of records and also it, it was one of those things until I started on the project I didn't realize that those big black shells that I saw washed up on all the beach and the big thick oyster shells were once part of an extensive oyster reef and once you see them you can't unsee them so everywhere you go for a dive I'm seeing oysters every time I walk along a beach I'm seeing oysters and you start to think of oh, I wonder what this was once like Hmm. So what's next for that project and how long do the – so every three months you're going back to check them? Yeah, so we've got a couple more places to put the plates out. But, yeah, the idea is we left them out for six months in the Mm. pilot trial and after sort of reviewing the project they said, look, it would be great to know after three months if you capture most of the information Mm. because the oysters are quite unique in that most shellfish will spawn into the water column You'll have eggs and sperm in the water column. They'll mix and they'll float around as larvae and settle. Mm. Whereas oysters actually brood internally. So they will, Mm. I guess, they inhale the sperm and fertilise internally (laughs) would be one way of putting it. <clears throat> carefully and they this will brood we're taking material away from heather who does the sex in the sea shows yeah i can provide heather with some yeah. interesting stories about that there's, there's plenty of directions that one can go but they brood internally and they when they release the the larvae they're actually a lot more developed and so mm-hmm. they then release them into mm. the water column. And I've actually got distracted and forgot what the original question was. <laughs> <laughs> I was just asking about kind of what was next. But uh, I was actually also going to ask what their, like, lifespan is after all of the spawning and everything. Like, how long does it take them to kind of establish and... I'm, to be honest, I'm not quite sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, to go <clears> back to the, the question was... <laughs> they generally spawn October, November, December, Jan. And they're mm-hmm. one of those ones where you can actually open them up and you will see it's called like a grit. Like, mm-hmm. But you'll see the little black dots of the larvae in there and that's why mm-hmm. they're known as mud oysters apparently because people would eat them at this time of the year and go, oh, it tastes like mud. Yeah. But all they were doing was crunching on the larvae. Um, oh. But we seem to... Th- <laughs> 
seem to think that um, October, November is sort of the peak sort of time, but we're not quite sure. I guess there's mm. still a lot of knowledge gaps to be filled. So the idea is to put the plates out for three months and we'll re-put some out in January and we'll actually have two sort of seasons or times of year where we can look at the recruitment and see whether it differs because it's quite important for when they actually construct the reefs, the timing of putting the substrate in mm-hmm. is going to be quite important. So yeah. that's what we're, we're trying to work that out. Yeah, Great. Awesome. Well, it sounds really interesting. Um, can people still get involved in this or have you engaged the citizen scientists already that um, will be following the project through? Oh, people can always get involved. We've got yep. a few groups that are sort of running dives to help mm-hmm. either do the cleanup or do the collection. And when it yep. comes to the collecting, we'll have cameras out and we'll take photos so we've got a permanent record of them but we're also bringing microscopes down to look more closely to look for I guess smaller larvae Mm -hmm. but also it's one of those things you drag a microscope out and you start looking at what's on a settlement plate and there's so much amazing stuff Mm -hmm. and it's people just haven't interacted with it before so it's just a chance to sort of open their eyes to something new so probably keep an eye out um, Mm -hmm. look through the VMPA join up with the reef watch mailing list and I'll let people know when groups are bringing the plates in and they can get on board awesome and same goes for the great victorian fish count as well if people want to get involved in that how can they do that yeah the best way is would be to jump on our web page mm-hmm. i've got a link here or you guys can probably put yeah it up. we'll put that on our facebook page jump on our web page and <clears throat> the idea is to find a local dive group that's doing a, a um, snorkel or mm-hmm. a dive at the right time. We also, this year, for the first time, we're running two, we're calling them wild family events. Mm-hmm. So on the 18th, which is the 18th of November, the first day, we've got um, Dive to You at Rye Pier and we're opening it up. We would like you know, people to drag their kids along and jump in the water with their kids and start exploring and doing the fish count and helping out that way. Great. And we're also doing on the 16th of December over at St. Leonard, so we're covering both parts of the bay. And again, it's open to families. Mm-hmm. And if you're one of those lucky people that don't have Facebook, the website is vnpa.org.au. So you can look up the details there. And for fair weather snorkelers like me, what's the water temperature this time <laughs> of the year? <laughs> the, ca- the camera that's out at yeah. Pope's Eye actually yeah. has um, a temperature sensor on it. Oh, um, and if it's working correctly... The temperature is getting up to around 17 degrees. Oh, that's not too at, bad. At the moment, wow. yeah, mm. which is sort of unseasonably warm. Mm. So give it another month and for the fish count to start. That gets flushed with the cold water from Bass Strait there as well. So the shallows will probably be a bit bit warmer, hopefully. If, we, if we've got a few warm days in the lead up to your fish count event, you should be in some with some <laughs> luck. Yeah, yeah nice yeah. and warm. But you'll be providing hot showers, is that right, on site? Yeah, yeah, I'll have a... <laughs> a, a what is it? A drink bottle of water that I'll leave in the sun on the dashboard of the car and you feel free to rinse yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Great idea. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right. Well, um, that's all we have time for today on Out of the Blue. Thanks to Cade Mills from the Victorian National Parks Association for joining us. And thank you, Donna. No worries. Stick around on 3CR for Out of the Pan coming up next. And we'll leave you with This Is Not The Way Home by The Cruel Sea.
truck stop Got wet sweat under a hard top Wrong directions are shown Threw up in the men's restroom This is not the way Wrong direction to shine. 